I'm Lance Ward. Uh, if you just walked in, I was introduced a while ago. Steve and his family are on vacation, are coming back from vacation. Uh, turn to, if you will, uh, I, what I get to do this morning is good. I teach at 9.15 as well, so I'm going to try out the lesson I'm teaching at 9.15 now. So, sorry, y'all are just getting the first draft, but my class gets the first draft every week. So, I hope they show up today because it's going to be spectacular. Everything I screw up in here will be fixed by the time I get to my class at 9.15. So, uh, let me read this. Turn to Psalm 145, if you will. I want to read something that Joe Jones has written for Memorial Day, but then it fits well with the psalm because this psalm is, in a sense, a song of remembrance. Uh, I think that oftentimes when we are unable to worship or when we find it hard to worship, it is often because we've forgotten. We've forgotten what God has done. We've forgotten who He is. And so, in a sense, this is a psalm of remembrance, Psalm 145. So turn there, if you will. We'll read that, and then we'll go through that as a class. My class at 915, we've been going through the psalms this whole year. We've, since January, we've, we've just chosen different psalms, and we've got a 30-day reading plan where we read through the psalms every month. And what I try to do is time the psalm I'm teaching with a psalm that we'll be reading that week. And so as the end of the month approaches this week, our class together will be reading. One of the ones we'll read is Psalm 145. But few classes in this church have not only a tech guy, but also a resident poet. That of Joe Jones is both. So I want to read something he's written for Memorial Day as we celebrate tomorrow. By the way, one announcement too that I forgot to make. Um, uh, if you can hold it, the rest of today, please do. The toilets are, the water pressure is low, and that's because a water line has broken, and the city is on their way to fix it, and hopefully we don't have to end up doing something with church today, because usually when a water line is broken, at some point we have to shut all the water off. So pray for that, and hopefully you didn't drink a lot of coffee and water. If you are drinking coffee or water, please cease and desist right now, <laughs> because all we know is that these toilets aren't flushing. We don't know about the others, but uh, or get a bucket and use it on the back so, yeah, washing hands. Uh, don't shake anyone's hands today, um, just so you know. Okay, so, but be praying in your hearts for that, too, because, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. It could be that we'll have an announcement that we can't have church today at some point. Hopefully that's not the case, but the water lines usually break within view of my office, and I find that they always break either on Saturday or Sunday. I don't know why that is, but uh, the enemy is good at what he does. Memorial Day, Joe Jones, their eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. They've defended all our freedoms with the gun and with the sword. They sacrificed their lives, which was their price to pay, so we might carry on to remember them today. For those who fought for the great red, white, and blue, this Memorial Day is to honor you. May God bless everyone that has served this great country. Joe Jones. Thank you, Joe. Would you raise your hand if you've ever served in the, in the service, in the military service? Thank you. Thank you so much for your service. I've got a, one of my favorite series. Uh, I don't have HBO, but one of my favorite, probably my favorite series that they've ever done is Band of Brothers, which is the documentary of the 101st Airborne in World War II. And had a friend on Facebook last night that said, he just got it out and watched it. I think my family and I, maybe we'll do that today and tomorrow. I'd love that great series. Uh, uh, speaking of D-Day, that is one of those series that after every episode, I begin to weep for those who've defended our freedom. So we're thankful, so very thankful for you. Um, let me read Psalm 145, and then let's delve into it. Um, this is a psalm, again, 
that speaks of praising and blessing the Lord. This is known as, to some as David's favorite psalm. It's the, they call it the crown jewel of all the psalms that David wrote. And it is one of those that when you read it, hopefully your heart will be stirred to worship simply by absorbing everything that it says about our great God. A song of praise of David, it says, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation will commend your works to another and will declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power, and make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of everyone look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. He is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. I was about to pray with my daughter last night. She's been sick the last couple days and about to pray with her. And I said, Haley, tomorrow I'm going to teach that God is great, but he's also good. And she kind of tilted her head and she said, good and great, those are synonyms, aren't they? And I said, yes, in most cases they are, but in today's lesson, they are actually not synonyms. They are, in a sense, opposites. Think about it this way, and then we'll go through this. God is great, yet he's also good. What does that mean? How can Lance say that great and good are different? We'll look at that today in Psalm 145. Uh, first of all, God is great. It, it, uh, we're, not going to, we're going to skip the first couple of verses because we're going to come around those at the very end. Because what David is doing is he's praising the Lord, but in most of the psalm he's telling us why he praises the Lord. First of all, because God is great. God is beyond our comprehension. Verse 3, he says, God is great and greatly to be praised. And the word great here is this idea of vastness, of, of infiniteness. It's this idea of when we go to a beach and we stand and we look out at the ocean, or my wife grew up on the Gulf and she insists that whenever we're on the Gulf, it is not an ocean, it is a Gulf, right? But whether it's an ocean or a Gulf, I'm just going to call it the sea. But we stand on the shore and we look out and we really begin to meditate and say to ourselves, this is great. This is vast. I can't see the end of it. I can't see the depths of it. We may begin to think of what's going on under the surface. We can't see what all is going on under the surface. And it makes us feel small, and that is good. 
it helps us to remember that we are but little bitty finite human beings and there is this vast sea. And that's the idea of the psalm when it says God is great, that he is vast, that he is, uh, notice it says his greatness is unsearchable. In other words, his greatness is unfathomable. It's past finding out. Uh, a couple of verses where this same word is used is Job 36, 26, where it says, Behold, God is great and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. Isaiah 40, verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. In the New Testament, Romans eleven thirty three, Paul quotes the Old Testament scriptures when he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. And so we have this God in the Bible that is knowable. We have a God that wants to be known, yet the entirety of who he is is unfathomable. We, uh, I believe this is true, that one day we will be, we who love the Lord, we who know Christ, we will be with the Lord in glory. And I think we think to ourselves, then we will understand everything there is to know about him. I don't think we will. I think every day in glory there will be something new because God is infinite. There is no end to understanding or knowing him. That will be one of the great wonders of being with him for eternity. Can you imagine every day beginning and we see something new about God and we just gasp because he is unsearchable. We are finite. God is knowable, and yet he is continuing to be known. He will continue to be known. What we know of him now is more than enough to know him personally, but it's not even approaching everything there is to know about him. Not just knowing him, but knowing why he does what he does. How many of us ask why? Why does God, why does God do this? We don't know a lot of the times. We won't maybe know until glory. Uh, one of the things that I've, uh, I'm, I've always been a strange character, but since I was a little kid, I used to think to myself, and you probably have too, we believe in a God that has no beginning and he will have no end. And I have tried to wrap my mind around that. Have you ever contemplated the belief in a being that has never known a beginning? He's not been created. There is no beginning to God. And you you sit and you think about that and it just drives you nuts. And what a lot of people do is they just say, well, then I just don't believe in God because I can't understand that. Isn't that sad? Because that's one of two ways you go. When you think about the unsearchable nature of God, you either in your finite little mind say, I, I can't understand that, so I just won't believe it. Or I can't understand that, and I certainly want to believe in that. I want a God. Don't you, don't you want a God that you can't, in some ways, that you can't quite explain? He's unsearchable. He's big, he's great, he's vast, but he's also knowable, and that's the comfort. In verses 4 through 6, God is beyond our ability. He is supernatural. Notice in verse 4, it talks about his, his works. These are the things that he has done. In, the things that he has done. In verse 5, uh, it talks about his, wonder, his mighty acts, uh, his wondrous works, his mighty acts, his uh, in verse 5, it says, in his wondrous works, this is also used in Exodus 3.20 when the Lord is speaking to Moses. And he says, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, Pharaoh will let you go. That when we look back, and this is one of the things the psalmist does, Memorial Day for the Hebrews was remembering back to those days when God delivered Israel from Egypt. They were always told, 
go back. That's why they would have a Passover. Passover was the Israelites' memorial day. It was their way of saying, let's remember what God has done for his people, his mighty wonders, his, his wondrous acts. And, and, and David says in here, I will meditate on these acts. Um, I wonder if we could real quickly, how, how many Bible-knowing people, scholars we have in here, what are some wondrous acts that God has done through history that are simply amazing and astounding? Just throw some out here. Red Sea, part of the Red Sea. They went through. What else? What's that? Noah and and the ark. And then you've got Jonah and the whale. You've got all kinds of acts that God is doing. That's right. They're just a couple of years apart. They were cousins, you know. (laughs) What else? Feeding the 5,000. We could go on and on. Let me ask you, what's that, Mary? Raising Lazarus from the dead. Yeah, Lazarus come forth. I remember Chuck Swindoll saying the reason he called out his name is everyone would have come out of the grave. <laughs> Lazarus, you, come forth. You're the, you're, you're the winner today. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. Here's Lazarus. He gets to come. Okay, he has done mighty things. We could go on and on and on. And you remember John writes in his gospel, he says, you know what, I've only given you just a slice of what we saw Christ do. If I were to tell you everything, there would not be enough libraries in all the world to contain all the books that we could tell you of everything that Christ has done, everything the Lord has done. I have a book in my office. It's not one of those that's real easy to read, but it's one I treasure, and it's by a guy named, his last name's Andrews. I can't remember his first name, but it's called Polishing God's Monuments. And in this book, he's a pastor, and his daughter has this horrible disease, and it's, it's, it's so hard, she's allergic to everything, so allergic that she has to live in a house with no electricity or heat in the winter time, and she has to make her own clothing because the perfumes and the dyes, everything that's in clothing, it, there's no, she has to sleep with almost nothing on in a cold house. She can't have visitors. She can't accept mail because she's allergic to the paper and the ink. She can't read a computer, so she has no content. She can't watch TV. She can't read books. She can't listen to the radio. And this is his story of his daughter going through this awful time. And a lot of it contains his letters to his church family to try to explain what's going on. And it's his wrestling with why would God allow this. And there are days in his story, as you can imagine, where he says, I'm just, my whole family, we're just down and discouraged and we feel like we have no hope. So Polishing God's Monuments is a reference back to the book of Joshua where uh, Israel crosses the Jordan River. You, you remember God parts the water at least three times in Scripture. you got the Red Sea, the Jordan River, and then Elijah and Elisha, they part the water. But when Israel crosses over the Jordan, then the Lord says to them, now go get a stack of rocks, and I want you to stack them up, and I want you to make this monument so that one day when you and your children walk by, your children will say, what do these stones mean? And you will tell them about the time that I brought you into the land. And his point in the book is that sometimes all we have is remembering what God has done and polishing those monuments that we have set up. And sometimes in our lives, especially in the dark times, that's all we have. This is what Israel was used to. A lot of the Psalms do this. A lot of the Psalms say, never forget what God has done. Meditate on his mighty acts. Never forget that every Easter, watch the Ten Commandments and watch what Charlton Heston does with the power of God. You know, Watch the Red Sea part. 
Read about the resurrection. Know, read about the feeding of the 5,000, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, the woman who's from Nain whose son was dead and in a casket, and Jesus says, do not weep, and he raises that boy from the dead. Remember what God has done. Remember how he's taken you from being hopeless to filled with hope because sometimes that's all you have is what he's done in the past. Polish God's monuments. And that's what the psalmist, that's what David says he does. He says, I will, I will meditate on these things. And then he says, we will commend this from one generation to another. We will not forget to tell our children so that they will meditate on how great you are. Verse 6, it speaks of, they shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds. This literally means your terrifying deeds. Have you ever noticed in Scripture that when people see God do marvelous works, it not only brings great joy, but it first brings about great fear, great terror. There is a time where terror is good. There is a time where God gives us shock and awe to remind us this is not something you can do. Uh, we, some of us had some terror last night as we were wondering, are the waters going to get into our homes? You know, we, isn't it amazing that I can, you can turn on your sprinkler system and keep it on all day long? And there'll be just a little trickle down the street. God comes along and gives you two minutes of rain, and there's a river going down your street. It is meant, in a sense, to terrify us. It's meant to remind us that God is beyond all of our comprehension. He's beyond all of our ability. We can do what the best that we can do doesn't even scratch the surface of the wonders that our God can do. Thirdly, in this first section, God is also beyond our imagination. He's majestic. He is beyond the most glorious thing or person we could ever know. We can name somewhere we've gone. We can name a famous person we've met. And we can say, boy, I was in awe when I met this person. Or I was in awe when I went to this place. And God, these things pale in comparison to his glorious majesty. It, it talks about, in verse 12, his glorious splendor. Splendor here means awesome, majestic beauty. So that when we see it, we just, <gasps> we gasp. I remember when our family was traveling to Myrtle Beach in 2003. It was a place where my wife and I had met 14 years earlier, and we had our kids with us, and my oldest was eight, and my daughter was six, and then we had a, uh, she was five, and then our youngest was three. And we're driving, we stayed with some friends in Tennessee, and so we're on I-40, and we know that the Smoky Mountains are coming up. We just don't know where. And there's a place on I-40, I can't tell you the mile marker, but there's a place and we're in our minivan, and I remember my oldest is in the very back seat, and you come over this hill, and boom, there's the Smokies. Y'all know, because y'all go there all the time. You know where that place is, Bill and Mary. It's just, and, and we're going to Myrtle Beach. We're not even to our destination yet, and our eight-year-old boy, who's playing on his little doodly thing in the back seat, looks up, and he goes, wow, this is going to be a great vacation. <laughs> We're not even going to stop in the Smokies except to go to the bathroom, you know. That's the only reason we're stopping in the Smokies. But he sees us. He grew up in North Texas where everything's flat, and the, only, and the only incline you get is when your foundation moves and your house is higher in one place than the next. That's all land and new. But when we crossed over that hill, this is the idea of splendor. We've all had those experiences in our lives where we see something for the first time and we just go, <gasps> Do you realize that that's what eternity is going to be like when we spend eternity with the Lord? That there will never be a time where we go, oh, this is cool. That every moment we have with the Lord for eternity, it will be one eternal collective gasp. 
because he is so beautiful in his splendor. David says in Psalm 27, one thing I desire, one thing I seek, to, to dwell in your temple and to behold and to gaze upon your beauty. It's the same idea here, that our God is majestic and he's splendorous. There's never a time in all eternity when we will see him where we won't get goosebumps and we won't just gasp. Can you imagine such beauty? I love to visit Colorado Springs as well and other parts of Colorado. Um, and we just we love going there because, again, we're from Texas and now we're living in Oklahoma and uh, there's no trees and everything's flat. We go there and we just are in awe of all the mountains. I, I, whenever I visit Colorado Springs, I always love to find Pikes Peak, and it's easy to find in most places in Colorado Springs. But Jenny's like, why? Will you stop looking at that? And I said, honey, it's just, and Pikes Peak's not, it's, not, it's half as big as Everest. Just the majesty of it. You, you just gasp. But the people that live in Colorado Springs, they probably don't even realize it's there most days. That's not going to be that way with the Lord. When we spend eternity with him, it will be one long collective gasp. He is majestic and he is filled with splendor. Psalm 96.6 says, Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. 104 verse 1, O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. There's nothing ho-hum about the living God. And also he's the king above all kings. Later in this passage down in uh, verse... Um, 11 and following, we see that he has an everlasting kingdom. He has dominion through all the generations. One thing we know about our God, he's the king of the universe and his throne will never be abdicated to another. He will never give it up to anyone else. No one will ever defeat him. As one author says, he's the undefeated champion of the universe, the living God. Uh, so, um, but here's the thing, and here's where I want to ask you a question. We've probably all known people in this world who are in other people's sights great, and sometimes that's for good reasons. Sometimes, you know, think back to high school. You had popular people, or think uh, to a time where maybe you encountered someone that was known to be great. Maybe it's a great athlete or a famous person. But here's the question I have. Whenever we encounter someone that is truly regarded as great and wonderful and above all other humans... What is that person usually like once you get to know them? Have you ever been with someone that is regarded as great? Not all the time, but what are these kind of people usually like? People. What's that? Other people. Yeah, other great people. What are they usually like? Yeah, in reality they are. But let me ask this, how do they usually act? Not all the time, but how do they usually act? Oftentimes when we encounter great... If Michael Jordan were to walk into this room... <laughs> and there he is right there. Don't look. If Billy Graham were to walk into this room... Billy Graham's different though, but Michael Jordan, you remember his speech from a few years ago where he basically just said, hey, I'm great and everybody else is small? A lot of the times, not all the time, but whenever we're in the presence of people who are famous or whenever we might have somebody that's the president of a huge corporation, it's not always true. In fact, we are usually in awe when those people are kind. We are in awe when they are generous, when they truly seem to care about who we are because what we expect is for them to be maybe arrogant, 
for them to push other people down, for them not to even think about, you remember what's her name that called the other people little people? What was her name back in uh, the 80s? Yeah, Leona Helmsley. You know, she said, I don't do that. That's what the little people do. Often when we encounter human beings who are great, we naturally expect that they will not be gracious and kind and merciful. We hope that they will be, but often they're not. That's why I say God is great, but he's also good. This is what strikes David the most. Here is a God who is infinitely beyond our comprehension, who is infinitely more powerful than we are, who is infinitely greater than we are, and yet in the rest of the psalm he will say, but he's also good. And this is what staggers David. It's what sets God apart. He's not only great, he is good. He's not what we would expect from someone with unlimited power and authority. Think of also, think of all the rulers that this world has seen and what did they do with their power. Think of the Hitlers and the Stalins and the Mao Zedongs and all those who have had great power. Think of Congress right now for the most part, right? Think of our leaders and what do I often wish that our leaders would do? I wish they would be humble and seek to understand who they're governing rather than to seek more and more power. Because we see that a lot. Not in everyone, but we see that. We expect that now of great people. In fact, we're living in a day where everyone mistrusts powerful and authoritative people, aren't we? God, though, David is going to unpack for us, is not like that. He's not, he has all the power anyone could ever want or need if you just take it down to the, the, the amount of, this amount of his power. It is infinitely beyond any power anyone on this earth has had. So what would you expect? You would expect him to push us down to humiliate us. But David says, no, he doesn't do that. Verses 8 and 9, God is unreasonably kind. It says, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. By the way, this is one of eight times in the Old Testament that God is described as gracious and merciful. People say, I don't, I don't like that Old Testament God. Seriously? You don't want a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love? Why did Jonah get mad at God in Jonah chapter 4? Because God was merciful to evil people. Because Jonah said, I knew that this would happen because I know who you are. You're gracious and merciful. We have so many people today say, well, the Old Testament God is angry and mean and he always wants to kill people. And the New Testament God is soft and cuddly. And I like to say, no. The Old Testament God is great and mighty, merciful and kind. The New Testament God is great and mighty and merciful and kind. He is not, there are not two different gods in Scripture. The psalmist recounts something that the Old Testament says eight times. Because the Old Testament continues to say to us, He is merciful. The problem in the Old Testament and New Testament is that people don't want to follow Him. And so that's when judgment comes. But Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah 26 says, Judgment is God's he doesn't say this literally. It's his last resort. He will do it, but he doesn't want to. He longs to be gracious and merciful and kind. He's not tyrannical. He's not unapproachable. He's not cruel. But he's kind and he's gentle. Look at verse 9. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. By the way, the word all here is listed 17 times in this psalm. And what this psalm is saying, it will say later that he does have a line where he, he, there's saved and there's condemned. But on this earth, he is kind to everyone, whether wicked 
or good. He is kind to all. This reminds me of Matthew 5 where Jesus says, God makes his side, the Father makes his son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Living in an agrarian culture at that time where almost everyone farms, Jesus says, have you ever noticed that righteous people don't get rain while the guy who's unrighteous next door gets a drought? That God sends rain on those who shake their fist at him and those who love him. That he is merciful toward all. And in the context of when Jesus says that, it's the context where he says, love your enemies, brothers and sisters, love your enemies. That our Lord in the present time is good to the undeserving. And he's good to the evil. And he's good to those who are his children. He's kind to all. His mercy is over all. Look at verse 14. He upholds all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. Remember Matthew 25 where it says, uh, give a cup of cold water to the least of these because why? Our God is a God who longs to go to the least of these. I bet you many of us in this room have a story, don't we? Where one time we were bowed down, we were low, we were hopeless, we felt unloved and uncared for, and God, who could have easily just said, well, that's what you deserve because I'm worthy and you're not and I will crush you. He doesn't crush us. He comes down and extends his hand. He says, come with me. I will raise you up. The exalted God longs to exalt us. Isn't Not in a worshipful sense, but have you ever noticed that? That he has, what is it, Ephesians? He has raised us up with him and seated us in the heavenly places. And our response ought to be to that, why? We don't deserve that. None of us deserves that. He alone deserves that, but he longs to bring us to the place we don't deserve. He's unreasonably kind. That's Larry Crabb's definition of grace. You know, that grace is unreasonable kindness. It's kindness that makes no logical sense because our God is, in a sense, not a logical God when it comes to grace because grace never makes sense. Anyone who thinks they deserve grace doesn't understand grace. And that's hard because we live in a culture today where everyone talks about what their rights are, don't we? I've looked in Scripture, I can't find any rights that any of us has, except the right to hell. That is what makes knowing God so marvelous. We have no rights, and God says, I want to extend you up in John 1 to them, there's the one place I can find it, to those who are children of God, who have come to Him of faith. He gives them the right to be called children of God. Now we have the right to be called children of God, but he's so unreasonably kind. 15 and 16, God is outrageously generous. It says here, the eyes of all look to you. Everyone is dependent on God. He's never dependent on us. This, and, and it says you give them their food in due season. I remember when our kids were little and I was going to teach them a lesson at the table one night right before we prayed for the meal. And I said, kids, do you know where this food came from? And they gave a great pastor's kid theological answer. They said, in simultaneous synchronization, Walmart. (laughs) And I said, oh, I have not taught you well. May God have mercy on your wretched little souls. I said, no, it didn't come from Walmart. Where did it come from before it went to Walmart? It came from Walmart warehouse. Well, where did it come from? I was trying to tell them that every morsel that's ever sat on our kitchen table is only there because God ultimately has provided it. And I love where it says, it says, you provide their food in due season. You not only see God's generosity, but also his reliability. And you remember, this is given to a lot of people, many of whom were farmers. 
and they know that there are seasons to plant and there are seasons to harvest. And it's very consistent. There's some good years and bad years, but overall it's consistent that there is a harvest time and we look forward to that. And, and most of us never even think about that, do we? That there's a reliability to God. And we don't so much relate in that sense, but we do with the weather. We know that in May in Oklahoma, it's good to raise your house up a few feet and get out of town, right? We know that there is a cold time. There's never been a 30-degree day in July in Oklahoma, I don't think, right? So there's a consistency, and there are, there are cooler days in May than we usually experience right now, but we all know that the swimming pool opens this weekend. Ours is not going to be visited or inhabited by very many people in our neighborhood, but June and July and August are unbearably hot. January and February are cold. We get snow at one time of the year. We get a sun at the other. And I don't think we ever think about it, but why couldn't it be that we wouldn't know what to expect every day? Because we have a God that shows us order. You give them their food in due season. You open your hand and you satisfy the desire or the hunger of every living thing. You open your hand. That's what I was trying to teach my kids. We have this food on our table because God's hand is open toward us. Uh, In Matthew, Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. Your heavenly Father feeds them. He opens his hand. They don't worry because his hand is open. Um, Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, the hand of grace is never closed while the sinner lives. God's hand is open. It is gracious. I've wondered this too. Um, anybody ever struggle? I won't ask for a show of hands. Anybody ever worry about anything? Probably no one in this class. Now, a class I'll teach at 915, got a lot of worriers in there. One of them is me. But I often wonder, where does my anxiety come from? And really, it's never from circumstances. It's usually from forgetfulness. It's from forgetting what God has done and how he provides daily. Sometimes when I get anxious, one of the things I like to think about, this may not be true for everyone here, but it's true of me. I've never lived a day in my life of 48 years where I didn't have food to eat. Not only food to eat, more than enough food to eat. I've never known a day in my 48 years where I didn't have a nice place to sleep. We got a new mattress a couple years ago and got a little foam topper. And sometimes I'll lie down in bed because I'm, you know, you're approaching 50 and the bed just gets more and more inviting. And I'll lay down and I'll lie on my back and I'll go, oh, so thankful for this bed. Never had a time where I haven't had a nice mattress to sleep on, and I have, I have a very flat pillow. It's about, the, about the, the depth of a saltine cracker. I just like it that way. A nice flat pillow. Why do I get anxious? Because I forget. Sometimes I get anxious because I just stop worshiping too. Do you? Worship is a way to relieve our anxiety because this is what this psalm is about. When we worship, often we remember We remind ourselves who God is and what He has done and the fact that we have never gone without because He is so good. Look at verses 18 through 22. We're almost about to round this up. But God is joyfully near to humble sinners. Verse 18, the Lord is near to all who call on Him, to all who call on Him in truth. Have you ever noticed that in Scripture, that anytime somebody bends the knee and says, Lord, forgive me, the Lord, remember what Marty said about the prodigal son, When the prodigal son comes home, he walks toward the father. What does his father do? His father runs to him. That is the nature of our God. He is near. He he knows that we are unworthy and undeserving of all of his grace and his love. And yet, he just cannot wait to encircle us and surround us with those things. He's, He's righteous in all his ways, verse 17. He's kind in all of his works. You remember the Garden of Eden? Have you ever noticed this? 
that when the serpent tempts Eve, she's not named that yet, she's just the woman at this point, have you ever noticed that he never tells her what to do? He never says, go ahead and take a bite of that fruit. He makes a statement. He, makes, he has a question. He makes two statements. And in none of those does he say, why don't you go ahead and eat? What he does, though, is he causes her to doubt God's goodness. Did God really say? Oh, you won't surely die, for God knows the day you eat of it, you will become just like he is. He's pulling the wool over your eyes. He's holding something over you. He's got all this power, and he doesn't want to share it with you. Satan convinces the woman and the man who's nearby listening that God can't be trusted. This psalm reverses that and says God is always good. His motives for us are never impure or evil. God is always good to us. He's always kind to us. Satan wants us to believe that God is sometimes or all the time the bad guy. And the psalmist reminds us God is never the bad guy. Even when we're going through something and we're wondering, how could God allow this in my life? One of the things I like to remind myself of is, if the scriptures are true, God is never the bad guy. He might allow bad things to happen in my life, but he's never the bad guy. If he allows those bad things, it is never for my bad and it is always for my good because God is never the bad guy. Um, everything he does is good for us. 19, he fulfills the desire of all who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. But, in verse 20, the wicked he will destroy. You know, and I think in the context of this psalm, when it says wicked, he's not saying there are some people who are sinners and some people are, who are not. He's saying there are some people who realize they're sinners and they call out to the Lord, and there are some people who never call out to him. And that is where the boundary lines are drawn with God. Here is my open hand. Take it. And there are a lot of people in the world in all of history that have slapped it and said, no, I'll figure it out myself. I don't need you. I'm really not that bad. I don't need you. I'm capable of doing things on my own. I'm a self-made man or woman. I can do what I want. I've done all this in my life. When I get before you, we'll negotiate. And that is when God will say, we don't negotiate now. My hand was open. Why didn't you take it? I want to ask you as a class, it's an assumption to make that because we're in Sunday school, we've all done this, but I want to ask you, have you called out to the Lord? and said, Lord, be merciful to me. I am unworthy and I'm a sinner. And you know what the Lord does every time? Is He says, oh, you have no idea of my mercies. I cannot wait to shower on you things beyond your wildest dreams. That's our God. He's not the Savior of all, but He's the Savior of all who call on Him. So how does this is where David, let's round this up. How do we respond to these facts? That God is great, and also that he is good, right? Some of the time, right? Living faith, he's good some of the time. No, God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. How do we respond? When we take in the greatness and the goodness of God, we can't help but praise him. When these things that we've talked about this morning are internalized, in verse 7 it says, they shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness. That pour forth means bubble up, that there will be something in us that just explodes. And he says, I will extol you, my God, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. David, and then he ends the psalm, my mouth will speak of the praise of the Lord, and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. David is exploding with praise because he knows that God is great, but he's also good. 
He's great, so David is in awe, and he's humbled. He's good, so David is grateful. He knows he's undeserving, but he knows that every good and perfect gift, James says, comes from the Father of lights. Um, one quick story, and then we'll close. And thanks for allowing me to teach today here. Um, President Theodore Roosevelt, the late, he's dead, right? Yeah, I know, I'm kidding. I made an A in history most times, all right. Yes, I know he's dead. I was just kidding. I mean, I know he died in 1986. I know these things. No, I'm just kidding. He died long before that. He had a habit. Every now and then at night, he would step outside, especially when there was no moon and it was completely dark, and he would look into the night sky, and he would find a faint spot of light at the lower left-hand corner of Pegasus, and then he would say this to himself. That is the spiral galaxy of Andromeda. It is as large as our Milky Way. It is one of 100 million galaxies. It is 750,000 light years away. It consists of 100 billion suns, each larger than our own sun. Then he would grin and say, now I think I feel small enough. Time for bed. <laughs> this is a psalm that is meant to do that. It's to make us feel small, not so that we would feel smaller, but so that we would grasp the magnitude of our great God and rejoice that his hand is open. And he says, here's what I want for you and you and you and you. I want to take your little small finite self, your unworthy self, and I want to lift you up and seat you in the heavenly places. And when we realize those truths together, if we don't worship, we probably don't have a pulse. So I hope this is preparing y'all. Many of you will be going to worship service now as we worship together at night, or as you worship together. I'm going to teach and Encourage others to worship at 11 or 10.45. But as you go to worship, remember the greatness of God and remember the goodness of God. Let's pray. Our Father, you are indeed great and magnificent. You are filled with splendor. Oh, those days we will have where we will spend with you in eternity. We thank you that your word is clear, that those will never be days of boredom. Those will never be ho-hum days. They will be days of awe. And Lord, we thank you that when we consider these things right now, our days right now can be filled with awe. And we pray that you'll do that in our hearts, that you'll give us through this psalm and through your word a sense of deep and high wonder so that we may worship and praise you and honor you and be drawn to you and know you more and more each day. Pray for everyone in here that everyone in here will have taken the open hand. And we also pray for those we know and love, those we work with, those we serve with, those who are our neighbors, our children, our parents, our, those that we know closely who have closed their arms to you and said, I don't want it. Lord, we pray that they will realize the magnitude of your goodness and your mercy, that they will call out to you, that you will save them for your glory. And we thank you. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There is no one higher than you. You're the incredible majesty, you're the invincible God, and we thank you that we have the honor of knowing you and that we have the privilege of being raised up with Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.